Well, my name is Simon. I am one of the pastors here at Grace Hills, and grateful that you have joined us to worship. We got a lively bunch this morning, so I can't wait to get into where we've been. So, we have been in the book of Acts. We are we've made it to chapter four. We are just chugging, chugging through it, but we're getting there. And up to this point, one through three, what we've seen is that the church has exploded, that God has moved amongst his people, that the Holy Spirit has resided, and as that is happening and the gospel is preached aggressively, that people are actually coming to worship him. And they're coming in hundreds and in thousands to actually come to him at this point. And it's kind of the honeymoon phase of the church. Well, as we move into chapter 4, there's going to be a transition that takes place. And there's all these natural transitions. And the transition in chapter 4 is what we're going to call the first persecution of the church. And that's where this happens. What does the world do? How does the world respond to the message of Jesus and what happens? Now, I don't know everyone's background. And I don't know how they came to a place of faith where they've come to worship Jesus. But I have talked to a lot of people, and as I've talked with people and counseled with people, I've heard from time to time people say, when I came to Christ, someone told me, if I just come to Jesus, everything will be better. If I just come to Jesus, all your problems will go away, the the clouds will part, a rainbow will come down, and butterflies will flutter around your head, and everything will be great. And then they may come to Christ, they're like, wait, life's still hard. Life's still difficult. We still live in a broken world, and they feel as though they got duped into something that they weren't actually getting. And we have to start asking some of the questions that, what does it mean when I follow Jesus? What does it mean when I do what Christ says for my life? Did Jesus just come to make my life happy and amazing and that everything in my life would go great? Or did Jesus deal with a larger problem and gives us the ability to have hope and peace and joy when a sinful world does what a sinful world does? If we press into what's happening with Peter and with John this morning, I think that we're going to start to see this is what it looks like when you bring this message, when you live a righteous way, when you point to Christ, but even more so, how do we respond to a world that is going to be hostile to the message of Jesus Christ? And so... What we're going to do is we're going to cover uh, a lot of verses this morning, so I'm going to try to be careful on how much weight of, of verses I throw at us this morning so we can kind of be in the text of where we are. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be in verses 1 through 22. Now, if you're a guest and you don't have a Bible or you, you forgot your Bible, there's one in front of you in the seat, or if you're like, i just not sure how to navigate it, just follow along on the screen and you'll know that I'm not making things up, that we're reading from Scripture here, Okay. So let's start in Acts 4, verse 1. And they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple of the guards, the Sadducees, came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them, put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day... Their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. 
And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has come to the cornerstone become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition." But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this passage. As we press into what it looks like when we love you and follow you, preach you and live for you, how the world's going to respond. I ask that you would open our eyes, that you would give us the ability to hear you. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be uh, working through me this morning, that you would give me the words to say that I would point to Christ in all things, that I wouldn't be a distraction or a hindrance. And I ask that ultimately your name would be lifted high, Christ that men and women would come to know you, love you, and worship you. Pray all these things in your glorious and amazing name. Amen. Amen. Now, this section isn't horribly complicated as far as how it's laid out. It's broken down into three parts, and we're going to look at each part as we move through the story. And then from that point, we're going to get to some observations and then a couple of questions of application in our lives. So if you'd like to know where we're going, I have now revealed to you my whole plan. You now know. We're going to start with the arrest, then we're going to go to the hearing, and then we're going to go to the warning. Those are the three sections that we're going to look at today. Now, the arrest is in verses 1 through 4, and I try to, the best that I can, put myself into the scenario, into the situation that's happening, so you can have a better grasp of what was going on in that moment. So you have to remember, this is, I think, the third week that we've been looking at the same story of John and Peter that healed this crippled man, and then they move into the temple area, and this guy's jumping and praising God. It's drawn this huge crowd around them, 
And then what does Peter do? Well, this is what's going to be the theme. Every time Peter gets a crowd, he's like, ah, an opportunity to talk about Jesus. And that's what he's going to start doing. So he starts talking about Jesus as the Messiah. He starts talking about the resurrection of the dead and what that looks like. He starts explaining through Scripture that this is the Old Testament that was talking about this Messiah, the Christ, the one that was going to come. And then all of a sudden, there's this large group of very important men that surround them, grab them, and pull them away from the situation. So like, everything's great, everything's happy, and then the buzzkill comes in and just squashes all this, this preaching of Jesus Christ. And so they grab these guys, and it says that, um, we got to ask the question, why, why would they arrest them? Why would they grab these guys if they're in the temple and they're talking? Well, it's important to know that it says that they were greatly annoyed. Maybe your translation says grieved or disturbed. Some of the translations in the older ones say irked. I'm like, we won't use the word irked a whole lot. But they were none happy. So here's, here's how I see how they were uh, viewing what was going on. Who likes to watch movies and eat popcorn? That's kind of a thing that we do, right? We eat popcorn, we watch movies, it's fun. The problem with popcorn is it gets stuck in your teeth. And there's always that one that jams really far between your teeth and your gum that you can't get out, and you're trying to enjoy the movie, but you, all you can think about is just a kernel, and it's like a dagger that's shoved into your mouth, and you're just trying to get it out, and it bothers you, and it's painful, and it's not fun, and there's great rejoicing when it comes out, right? You ever tell, I got it out. Like, what are you talking about? The kernel. No, I don't care about your kernel. You know, but I do. It's greatly annoying. I'm distressed over it. The message of Jesus and Peter and John were the popcorn kernel in the religious people's gums. That's what it was like. That's where they were at. And they were so frustrated. And some would say, well, well why? Well, is it because they were teaching? A little bit. It had a little bit to do that they were teaching. But that really wasn't the main reason. It's what they were teaching. See, it, it's the message that's really important to where we are today, that they are teaching about Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. Now, we need to understand a few things. Now, one of the names we see really quickly is the Sadducees. And the Sadducees had a lot of different beliefs. They were more of a, a liberal side of the Jewish faith. And so there was two things specifically that they didn't hold to that were being preached during that time. One is they didn't believe in a resurrection. There wasn't a physical resurrection. And they were teaching that Jesus was resurrected and that those that have placed their hope in him would someday be resurrected as well. So they're like, strike one. That's not working for us. We don't believe that. The other problem was their view on the Messiah. A lot of them didn't even believe that the Messiah was a one individual person. But what they believed, a lot of them believed that the nation of Israel was the Messiah in the nation that was going to be the people that would save them. And so and they even really believed that it started in the, the Maccabean periods where they really thought that that started. But regardless, that doesn't really matter. All they were not looking for is they weren't looking for a Messiah. So now Peter and John are saying, this guy's the Messiah, and there's resurrection of the dead, and those that have placed their hope in him will be resurrected at some point too. That's problematic. That is, that is really uh, against all of their teaching, all of their preaching, and it challenged them in a couple of ways. It challenged their authority. It challenged them as spiritual leaders. And this is what I think is what's really happening here. 
These men had placed their worth and their value on how the world viewed them as spiritual leaders, that they were important, and that their position was something of value to them. And what happened in this moment, that that was being threatened. And as that got threatened, they were having a bigger and bigger problem. If these guys are teaching this message, if they're threatening our authority, if they're threatening our ability to be the spiritual leaders of this area, we won't be important. We won't have value. And don't we do that with ourselves all the time, that we try to put our value and our worth in something other than God? Money, power, relationships, family. We just keep naming things off, right? If I just have this thing, and what happens is as this gets pointed out, what do we do? We want to attack, don't we? Like, we all know that we have those areas where we're not really finding our identity fully in Christ, but we just don't want anyone to point it out. Because the moment you point it out, you got to do something with it. You got to deal with it. And that's what's going on. But don't miss what's really happening. Uh, two things. One, why they get thrown in jail? Well, the Sanhedrin meets in the morning. And this is evening at this point now. And so they're like, well, we got we to gotta meet. We got to get the Sanhedrin together to have this thing dealt with. So they throw them in jail. Let's let them cool off. We'll meet them in the morning. But the other thing that's really powerful is that Peter and John, once again, preaching the message of Jesus Christ. And what happens? 5,000 men, not so, that's not even counting women and children, that came to understand that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and placed their faith in him. That's amazing. And what do we see? It's just more salt. It's just more salt on the wound for the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the religious leaders. It's not like 10 people are getting together. This thing is growing quick, and we're somewhere around that 10,000 mark of people. So it's spreading fast and aggressively, and they know that they got to do something about it, but they don't know what to do. So that moves us to the next section, which is the hearing, which is in verses 5 through 12. Now, it can be hard to understand for what it was like for these men to be in this, in this trial, but I'll give it a shot. I'll do the best that I can. Now, there were a lot of people at this trial. We already know that when the Sanhedrin meets, there's going to be 72 that are going to be in that room. They're going to be sitting in this big semicircle that's going to be there. But then you've got all these other people there as well that we named off. So there's going to be somewhere around 100 plus people in this room, in this meeting. And if you look and you slow down, there's 11 different groups or people that are represented. All of them were powerful. All of them were important. All of them had influence and had connections. It's, it's also worth noting that these groups of people, they disagreed on a lot of stuff. Like fundamentally, they disagreed on theology and on doctrine and different teachings. And they weren't buddies. They weren't like, yeah, let's go hang out because we totally disagree on these main fundamental theological issues. They didn't hang out all the time. But yet what we see is as this message is being preached, all these different people that don't disagree and don't hang out a ton are all now gathered focused on one thing. I love that the message of Jesus was able to bring together people who disagreed. Like, that's crazy. Like, this, this Jesus, this message brought all these individuals, like, normally, like, I hate you, and I hate you, and we won't talk. 
But now they're hanging out in a room like you couldn't have orchestrated this group of individuals to all hang out and be in the same place at once. And yet God is doing that in that moment. And so what they have the common focus of is killing the truth of Jesus Christ to put aside their differences and to attack the one thing that threatened all the things that they wanted, which they wanted power, they wanted to be of importance, they wanted to have their names lifted up, and they wanted to be glorified in some way, shape, or form. So let's put aside our differences, guys, and let's stop this thing or else we're all doomed. It's very interesting how this is all playing out. Now, the Sanhedrin would meet in a semicircle. So Here's how it worked. There'd be this big semicircle that would be kind of laid out there. Then they would bring in the accused or whatever's going on in the middle of that. So literally, they are now surrounded by all these people and all their garb and all their outfits, and they're probably chained up, and they're standing there, and you've got you know, guards near you so you won't do anything that could inflict physical harm upon you if something happened, and they're all in there, and then they just start rapid-firing questions at you like a fun day, right? That seems like a great, a great way to spend the afternoon. So you don't miss, they were trying to use intimidation to get them to be quiet. We're going to have a large group of people. We're going to have important people. We're going to have people with authority in here, and we're going to start to, to lay into you and let you know what's going on. And so then they start asking questions, and the question is this in verse 7, by what power or by what name did you do this? How did this happen? What's going on? Who gave you the authority to do these things and make them happen? And Peter's got this great response. As Peter just kind of goes, like, if you've drugged me in here to this very important trial to ask me about healing this crippled guy because I did something great and loving and kind and wonderful and that we healed him, I'll tell you, I'll, sure, of course, I'd be more than happy to tell you. And then he gives the answer in verse 10. It says, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now, I want to stop right there. That's the answer to the question, right? Is there a period or a comma there? There's a comma. You could have just put a period and been like, and there's your answer. We're all done. Have a great day, everybody. But this is where things go different. He adds a comma. The comma is important because Peter is not going to stop there. Peter is going to press in, and he's going to press in hard. He's like, yeah, comma, the one you crucified, the one that God raised from the dead. He's, not, he's doubling down now. He's like, I don't know how this is going to play out. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going for it 110%. There's no stopping me right now. I'm getting after it. I'm going to make sure that you hear who this guy is. Not hiding his message. He's not hiding his cards. He wants everyone to know. And then if that wasn't enough, he's like, oh, let's quote some scripture. So then he goes, so verse 11 is him quoting scripture. It says, this Jesus is a stone that was crucified um, <clears throat> sorry, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders by which has come the cornerstone. So he does something clever here as well as he changes, he changes a word. So he, he's quoting Psalm 118.22, but he adds the word you, making it personal. 
Letting them know this wasn't somebody else. This was you guys. You're the ones who did this. You're the ones who made this decision. You're the ones that are guilty. It says God made him the cornerstone. Maybe your translation says the capstone. Regardless of what that is, that, that stone, whether it was the capstone or the cornerstone, was the most important piece of any building. It's what everything was built upon. So if it's the cornerstone, that is laying the foundation that everything would reside on. So it is a level and true and plumb building. If it is the capstone, it's going to be the one that's going to hold everything together at the end. And so those two, that stone would be the most important stone. He's saying, you guys were so blind that you threw away Jesus, the cornerstone, the capstone, the one that everything is built upon, that all history resides around and revolves around, you rejected him. But God has made him the most important. The peace that you want the peace that you're looking for with God, the relationship that you want with God, the salvation that you yearn for, that we are desiring to get back to what it was like in Genesis, yeah, you killed him. You threw him away. And then we get to the hero verse of the morning. Like, this is the one. Verse 12 is the verse. When Peter is saying this, he says... And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The only way for salvation, the only way for this relationship, the only hope that we have, the only joy that we can have is through Jesus Christ, and no one else can save you. Nothing else can save you. No work, no deed, no following the law. None of it will be able to save you. Only Jesus is the one that will save you. Now, as you're reading this, you're like, this feels like an accusation. And to a certain degree, it kind of is. But that's not all that it is. It's an invitation you see, as Peter's talking with these, these men, these individuals, he lays out the problem. He says, here's your fault. Here's your issue. Here's what happened. Here's how you are blind. Here's how you are guilty. But then he offers the solution at the end, doesn't he? He offers them the truth. This is how you can be saved. This is how you can have salvation. And he is literally offering them the solution to the very problem that they're dealing with. The next section is the warning. This is how they respond to it. And I just, this is 13 through 22. And I want to, I want to highlight the transformational work of the gospel. Think about who's doing this right now. This is Peter and John. Now, I want to focus specifically on Peter here for a second. Just a few months ago, there was another trial that was very similar to this one. It was just done at night, and Jesus was in chains standing before them, and they were questioning him. And Peter was someplace else. He was out by the fire watching from afar to see what would happen to the one that he loved. And he's being questioned as well at a little mini trial, wasn't he? By a young girl. Don't you know Jesus? Weren't you with him? No, no, no. 
And now here he is in a room, most likely in chains, surrounded by men that have the authority to literally have him killed. And he is boldly proclaiming Jesus Christ as his Lord and his Savior and inviting them to do the same. That's powerful. That that's what the gospel does. That that's what happens when Jesus gets a hold of you and the Holy Spirit resides that you are boldly proclaiming who he is. And they said, they saw, they saw their boldness. They, they, they noted like, these are, these are uneducated common men. How is it that they're doing this? And you know what? I love where they land. What's allowed these uncommon, uneducated men to do this? They had been around Jesus. Being in close proximity to Jesus had shown them everything that they needed to know. Being with the creator of the universe had given them what they needed to move forward with the message of the gospel. They spoke like Jesus now. They challenged the authorities like Jesus did. And these guys that were like, oh, this Jesus was such a problem, but we got him killed and took care of it. Now it's not going to be an issue. Suddenly now they're realizing that the problem is not going away that they thought that they solved, that it has actually gotten compounding worse. It's like Hydra, cut one head off, two more grow back. Like that's what's happened. It's like no matter what we do, this message is moving forward. We're seeing that it's rapidly growing We're seeing that men and women are being saved, that they're following them, and now they're in this 10,000 plus maybe more amount of people that are worshiping the Lord. They don't know what to do. So what do they do? They say, well, send them away, send them away. We're going to, we got to, we got to talk amongst ourselves. We got to figure this problem out. And they go, what do we do? Like, The guy is standing right next to him that they healed. You're like, why does it end with more than, and this, you know, this guy was more than 40 years old. It's a weird way to end that section. Because you could not set this up. This dude had been there his whole life begging. They're like, we all know him. That's, that's, that's Bill. That's Bob. That's Joe. Whatever his name was. That's the guy. We've all given the guy money. We all have seen his friends. They probably know where the dude lives. They're like, we can't deny it. They, think they couldn't deny it, but they were unwilling to acknowledge it. That's a hard spot to be, isn't it? Like, the facts are right in your face. I'm like, I, no. Really? All the facts are right there. People are praising God, worshiping the Lord, and all they can do is tell them to not talk about it. It's so funny that they won't even actually say what it is. In that name, in it. What's he talking about? He's talking about the gospel. That Jesus is Messiah. That Jesus takes dead people and makes them alive. That he saves people and offers salvation and peace to anyone that would call upon his name. This intimidation tactic was not working. They, They clearly weren't doing well with it. Throwing them in jail didn't work. So let's just threaten them and then tell them not to speak about this again. 
And you got to start asking Christian, like, if it's, not, if it's all a lie, if it's all made up, if it's not true, why threaten them? Right, right? Like, okay, it's, you tell me that you go out in the woods and look for leprechauns, I'm not going to physically attack you and be like, no, because there's no leprechauns. You're like, well, for breakfast, I had, there's no leprechauns, okay? You're not going to find them out in the woods. I'm not going to get all worked up. But these guys are so worked up over this thing that if it's a lie, why? Because it was true. It was threatening them and their power and their glory and their righteousness, and they had to kill it. They may not have understood all of it, but they knew that something was happening. And instead of pressing into it, they tried to silence it. You know what you can't do? You can't silence God. The the next question should have been, tell us more about what happened. Show us in Scripture where you see Jesus as the Messiah. Help us understand what he said. That's what should have happened. That's what the conversation should have been. Let's have a dialogue about this. Let's have a conversation about this. But no, because if you are right, then I'm wrong. And if I'm wrong, I have to change my ways, and I don't want to change my ways. Anyone ever feel like that? That's me every time you tell me I'm wrong. No, it's, it's you. Really? No, it's me. So they call him back in, and they say, here's our great plan. You're going to shut up and not talk about him. That's the plan. So that was their big, we figured it out. And Peter's response is really important. And it has a lot to do with authority and when to submit and when not to submit. And this verse can be taken like really sideways really quick. And we got to be really careful about that. And so I'm, I'm not going to spend an entire sermon on this, but I want us to understand something. In, in verse 19, I like the way the NLT says it. It's a little bit more simplistic. And it says this, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? That's the NLT version of it. Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? And the question really is, are you greater than God? Do you have more authority than than God, the creator of the universe, who speaks life into existence? Like, you think that you you can go above his head? Like, do you, you really think that? No. Like, we're gonna speak about this. We we gotta do we gotta talk about what Jesus said, what Jesus is doing. See, they knew that they were commanded by Jesus to take this message forward. You will be my witnesses. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Like, those were on the heels of everything that they were doing. Like, they had been called to do this. They weren't going to be like, oh, well, all right, we're going to let the created tell us what to do. They're like, no, the creator decides what we're going to do. The one who spoke everything into existence is going to, we are under his authority. So when we talk about rebellion, we talk about Romans 13, 1 through 2, and it says that we need to submit to the governing authorities, and then you've got a verse like Acts 4, 19, like there's this tension there, right? Like, well, which one is it, Simon? See, the Bible contradicts. No. There's a higher authority. God is our highest, ultimate authority. So when is rebellion taking place? When you see it, when it comes to God's commands and preaching the gospel. Like, that's what we're going to do. We are going to preach the gospel. We are going to do what God has called us to do. So they threatened him some more. They yelled at him some more. And then they release him. 
it's worth noting that I'm going to skip that. I don't have time. What, what can we take away from it? What are some observations that are made? There's one that I want you to understand is this. Persecution will come. Persecution will come. As I studied through the passages with persecution, I was overwhelmed by the amount of verses that talk about persecution. I want to I want to go to John 15. <clears throat> I want to start in verses, uh, oh, where do I want to start? I'll start in 18 and just kind of go for a little bit. This is Jesus talking. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Why would we think that the persecution that Jesus took on, that he dealt with, that he had in his life, that for some reason we wouldn't. If we're preaching the message that he preached to us and we're preaching that to others, do you not think that that is going to cause problems? Like we've seen what it produces. We see how it plays out. Um, I have a bunch of verses I'm going to put up there and I'm going to throw them up there. They're on our app. Um, If you want to study those throughout the week, um, go ahead and look at those. You can look them up. Uh, I mean, just Matthew 5, 11, Matthew 10, 22, 2 Corinthians 4, 9, Matthew 5, 12, 2 Timothy 3, 12, Matthew 24, 9, Mark 10, 30, 1 Corinthians 4, 12, Romans 8, 25. It just goes on and on. And I just grabbed a couple. I'm like, I'll just grab these. Here's some verses on persecution. It's not that we are, should be surprised when it happens, we should be expecting it to happen and realize this. We live in a country where it's hard to understand what persecution looks like. Well, this person unfriended me. Not persecution. Just not. We're talking about a hostile attack towards people that are preaching the gospel, like a physical hostile attack. And you're like, well, we live in America and that would never happen here. I need you to understand that it's coming. It's coming because it's happening all over the world today, right now. If you preach Jesus as the Christ, you will be killed and drug out into the street. It's coming. What will you do when it comes? The other thing is that God gives us the courage to walk into it. I think about, like, wow, that was, what was Peter thinking when he was given this message? What was, what was Peter thinking when he's standing in all in front of these guys, like, oh, man? I think I know what he was thinking. I think he was thinking Matthew 10, 16 through 19. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts. Oh, that sounds familiar. And flog you in their synagogues. 
You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. He gives us what we need in that moment. Love that he uses common people to do extraordinary things. If I'm God, I'm like, I'm picking the best of the best. I'm picking the A team, and they're going to go out there, and they're going to crush it. God doesn't do that, does he? God looks at it, and he goes, I'm going to pick the Z team. Like, <laughs> these guys are the worst. They're uneducated. They're out of control. I have insurrectionists in here. I got a traitor amongst my midst. Like, I'm going to take those dudes, and I'm going to go have them do great things. And you know what's great when great things happen? Who gets the glory? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ain't those guys. <laughs> no way. There's no way. But he loves us enough to include us in what he's doing. And I, I just, when I, look at, when I look in the mirror, I see this, I just see a regular old guy. I see Simon. I, I don't see a super intelligent power player. I just go, I'm just a normal guy. I feel like a normal guy. But yet God has chosen to use me to take his word forward. So any praise I get, I just I, pew, back up to God, to God. Not to me. That's him working through me. That's him doing something greater than I could ever do. And, and the last three weeks have really been a culmination around this, this man that was healed, right? We talked a little bit about it, so I'm not going to belabor it too much, but it really is, it's a picture of the spiritual brokenness that we all possess without Christ. That we are all broken, that we are all removed, that we are all unable. The idea of walking, that we are unable to, to live a life that brings God any glory at all in our own. But through the power and the name of Jesus, we can be healed. And that's what's going on with this picture. It's this, this physical picture of our spiritual problem. And he's saying, I will make you new. You will leap and you will be strong and you will praise me and you will be full of joy. The other observation is only one way for salvation, that's through Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said it. It's not like it's a new, whoa, I've never heard that. No, Jesus said it while he was here on earth. And now that's what Peter is saying. This is the message. It's offensive. Because what you're saying is, oh, yeah, you have your faith, and I, you know, all roads lead to Rome. We're all going to be with the great maker in the sky. It's a, no. No. There is one way to God, and that is through Jesus. You think that that's offensive? Hey, you're wrong. Hey, you don't believe the right thing. Hey, this is a problem that your life has developed a lot of sin, and that sin has to be punished by the wrath of God. There's a consequence for living in rebellion against God. Oh, and you can't do it on your own, so you have to rely on somebody else. So now you have to take a big humility pill. Offensive? Yeah, that's offensive. People don't want to hear that. But it says that's the only way for salvation, and we have that truth. It would be 
You're like, that's unloving, Simon. It would be unloving to allow people to go to hell thinking that they're going to heaven. That's unloving. Prisons and people can't stop God's plan for salvation. They just can't. Something that Peter does is that he, he seizes every opportunity to share the name of Jesus. We need to seize every opportunity to take the name of Jesus forward no matter what we do. We also see that God is our highest authority. We always defer to God. God is always in control. God always is our highest authority. Here's the thing. Life is going to be difficult. Parts of your life are going to be hard. It's a hard life that we live in. And I just want to, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to say this a lot until you fire me. <laughs> our joy is not dependent on our circumstances, okay? Jesus gives us the ability to endure any circumstance because we know that our eternity is secure in him. So we can be bold. We can be courageous in the midst of extremely difficult times if we know the character of God, that he is a good, kind, and loving God. When difficult circumstances happen, we can say, I don't understand this, and that's okay. But God's character has been shown to be a loving and kind and just God, and there's something that I'm not seeing. And so because I know his character, I can trust him and press into that, that I can move into hard situations. Like, these were some pretty godly dudes at this point, and yet all these things are happening. This is the reality that we live in. It's going to be hard. If you preach the name of Jesus, it's going to be difficult. How will you live when the world pushes against you because you worship Christ? What are you going to do? Are you going to stand bold and confident on the name of Christ? Are you going to trust him to give you the words to say in those moments? Are you going to cave to the pressures? Because here's the thing with persecution. Persecution comes because it's trying to do one thing and one thing alone. Silence the name of Jesus. That's what persecution is. We're going to do whatever we can to get you to shut up. You can't stop and silence God. So there's a couple of questions I want. I want to ask you three questions, and then we'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll take communion. The first one is this. Have you been transformed? When you look at the crippled man, do you see that kind of change in your life? See, his, his inability to walk is contrasted by his ability to walk, right? I was once this way, and now I'm that way. If you have been saved by Christ and place your faith in Christ, there are going to be changes in your life and your life is going to look different. You are going to live, think, act, speak, deal with others differently than when you once did. Or does your life just look the same? Do, do people see a change in your life? Do they see a difference because of your worshiping Jesus that is different than the rest of the world? Do you look any different? And if you do, do you bring that message of transformation to others? See, like, 
that message is validated by the changed life, right? Like if I said, oh, Jesus changed you, do all these things, you're like, but you look exactly, there's no difference about you. That, that really kind of squashes that message, doesn't it? It really makes that message small. It doesn't seem like it works. Like, oh, I guess Jesus is broken then. Do you bring the message of a transformed life to others through your life and through your words? And the third one is this that I think that really revolves around the idea of persecution. Who are you afraid of that stops you from sharing? Who are you afraid of? And what are you afraid of? What is that person going to do to you? Say to you? How are they going to treat you? Do you realize all the men and women that have gone before us were under massive persecution and they pressed into it? Why? Because they believed that there was a God that loved them that sent his son to die for their sins, and the worst that the world can do is kill us. And if we die, where do we go? Get to stand before Jesus and worship Jesus where there is no more pain, there is no more suffering, there is no more hurt, there is no more brokenness. It's like, hey, I'm going to work while I'm here, but if you want to take me home, let's go. Let's do it. Who are you afraid of? Picture that person. Is it a family member? Is it a coworker? Some guy on the street? Is it some, someone who's posted something? Sometimes you never even meet the person, and it's like, well, that person says that, and I fear that. We can stand before that because Jesus will give us the words in those moments of what to say and when to say it and how to do it. I know that this is probably not a super popular message. I get that. But we have been called to be on mission. As we look into the book of Acts, it's always about pushing into the culture with the message of Jesus. And persecution is trying to push against that all the time. We have to believe and trust that our God is more powerful than the world. And I love the apostles seem to have the same idea. Oh, you could kill me? Let me tell you about Jesus. Like their attack plan was I'll convert you and then hopefully you won't kill me. That seems like the attack plan all the time. And sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. But like, that's just like, that's what they do. Like any opportunity. And so I want us to be a church that moves forward in that way bold and courageous. We're going to talk a lot about that next week. But what I want to do is I want to pray, and then I want to move into a time of communion. <clears throat> Jesus, I, uh, I don't know where everyone is this morning. I don't know where they've come from. I don't know what they dealt with. I don't know areas of doubt that they're dealing with. But you do. And I know that you're doing something bigger. I know that you have brought them here for a reason, that there's nothing that is outside of your knowledge. <clears throat> and I ask that if there are areas where people need to be convicted, are there areas in their life where there is no transformation, where they're not believing truth, that you would allow that to penetrate their hearts? If there's someone here who has never realized or heard the message that there is a God that loves them so deeply that he would send his son to die in their place, to give his best and his all, that he would lay his life down so that we could be with you. That you would draw them into you this morning, that they, maybe someone would confess for the first time that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Messiah.
and love you so much. Continue to work in our hearts as we continue in worship and communion. I love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.